This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong-Whaley. Kyle Toller, a senior communications major, joins me in co-hosting this episode for a discussion with Dr. Betty Kearse about her new book, The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family. Dr. Kearse is a descendant of the enslaved cook, Corrine, and her owner and half-brother, President James Madison. In her book, Dr. Kearse writes the stories of her family, preserved by eight generations of griots and griots, while confronting the abuses of slavery. She shares her family's inner strengths, their talents that contributed to American democracy, society, and economy, and their perseverance through centuries of racism and discrimination. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Dr. Kearse. Dr. Kearse, you begin your book by sharing the West African tradition of reciting stories of their people. You write about how for thousands of years, griots and griots uh, have passed down stories to descendants. I wonder if you can begin by sharing with us how you learned about this tradition and how you came to learn of your history as a descendant of the enslaved cook, Corrine, and her owner and half-brother, President James Madison. Well, um, I first learned about my own family history as a five-year-old. And my mother was a great seamstress, and she would sew fancy dresses for me, especially before piano recitals. And I would get really antsy and, you know, fidgety. And so to kind of get me to be more cooperative uh, with her rigorous sewing, um, she would tell me the family stories. And so I heard them again and again, you know, starting at about five and more and more was added as I got older and was able to understand some of the more uncomfortable parts of, of the story. But even then, my mother was pretty um, protective of me. But that's going off in a slightly different direction from your question. It's more like sort of the evolution of my understanding of these stories. But as far as learning about the griot, griot tradition, that is something um, I kind of, I didn't know the words, griots and griots, but I understood that the stories that um, I was hearing had been passed down from generation to generation um, in our country, but that that tradition had actually started uh, in, in West Africa. So I was, I don't, I don't know exactly when I understood sort of this really distant and um, you know, transcontinentalist, really big, important tradition. And it is a very important uh, tradition, especially in um, African-American countries, because, you know, so much of our history and culture was kind of, there was an attempt to take it away from us. But this tradition uh, held strong. Uh, the erasure of histories and histories of people and families who were captured and enslaved has meant that their voices 
and their stories have been silenced and buried of oh excuse me for hundreds of years and because of that uh, we now know that this country has come to the particular perspective of those who wrote and kept records um which is white and elite perspectives so what are the implications of these erasures for how we understand and practice democracy for distant racial inequities so the answer to that question actually follows um, the answer to the first one. And, you know, I, I was saying that um, we were able to maintain the tradition of oral history, which helped give us a voice, at least within our own communities, because it give us, gave us sort of um, a starting point. Sort of, it was sort of a, a grounding but in terms of our positions within the history of the whole country, our stories were kind of ignored, pushed aside, uh, distorted, misunderstood. And so the, the story that is taught in school is really not the whole story. It's just the story of those who wrote it down. And... Um, you know who and those who maintained those those uh, records, but there's a difference between history, heritage, and memory. And, and so I want to just sort of address that briefly. These are terms that I actually learned from Christy Coleman, who is director of um, the Museum of the, the Civil War. But history, I learned from her, is what actually happened. But I actually would like to come back to that. Heritage is what different communities choose to embrace as their history, what's important to them as America, Americans. And memory are those intimate stories you know, within families, sort of those, that oral tradition from the griots and griots. So I want to go back to history, the term history. And Christy Coleman and I have sort of a different feeling about what history really is. So history is that, that the history that we know, according in my feeling, in, in my, from my point of view, is the history that was written down and, and maintained by those who wrote it. But to me, it is not really what happened because there's always a bias. There's always a limitation of focus. And so it really wasn't what happened. It certainly wasn't all of what happened. You know, there were no uh, cam recorders going on, you know, actually recording um, events. It, what was written down was what certain people remembered and how they interpreted it. And so, you know, we don't really have um, the whole story. And this does lead to racial in inequities because we're not hearing the story from the point of view of African-Americans. One of the things that I really enjoyed about reading your book is that you do combine these these memories from your family and with 
uh, with, with events and with laws, with major um, constitutional amendments that occur. Um, so you're telling your family story alongside some of these macro level um, uh, events and experiences that gives us a new understanding of what the impacts of those events, of those laws were for particular communities, for particular families. Um, you're, you, you talk about your, your family's credo, always remember you're a Madison. You come from African slaves and a president. And I think you talk about how your grandfather added in the part, um, you come from African slaves. Um, but you share in the book that this credo was at times used to encourage certain kinds of behavior um, or to sustain the spirits of family members in the face of racism and adversity. Um, you also share how the griots and griots in your family added their own contributions as they collected evidence or looked at history from a contextual, a different contextual perspective. Um, and you're the first in your family to add to this history by confronting the truths about the implications um, of these abuses of this history, especially rape um, and, and the enslavement of human beings um, and being kept as property. Why was it important to you to add these aspects and what influenced you to take on these hard truths? Let me begin with the credo itself, because it really reflects um, what was going on in the country and how it was needed, at, uh, what role it played at, at different points in history. So it actually began um, shortly after the War of 1812. And Dolly Madison sold President Madison's and his enslaved cook's son. And as he was being sent away, his mother pleaded with him to always remember he was a Madison. And her only reason for saying that was because she thought it could be a tool to help them find each other uh, someday. And so that was the role that it played then. Then um, a couple generations, when my enslaved ancestors learned they were free, they no longer needed the name as a tool to find torn away loved ones. And at this point, it could become it became a source of inspiration. And the credo was then, always remember you are a Madison. You come from a president. Because my great-great-grandfather, Emmanuel, wanted them to make the most of that legacy. So the credo had a role in that historical period. Then my grandfather, who was born free, uh, he was proud that his father and grandfather and other enslaved um, Africans had um, overcome enslavement. And he added the words African slave. So 
at that point in history, it was important to my grandfather. This would have been about uh, when he was an adult, about 1920 or 25, around, around in there. So this was a period where, you know, Jim Crow was in full force and my grandfather wanted um, his children and grandchildren to be proud of their whole history, to see the whole history and to use it as a source of inspiration. And But then I come along at a different point in history. I did not change the credo at all. I didn't add any or remove any words. What I wanted to do was to look at it as a 21st, 20th and 21st um, century um, Black woman, mother, member of the Black community, and look at the whole story and, you know, um, not play it safe. Because I was a product of the Black Power Movement, the Civil Rights Movement, the Women's Rights Movement, I was able to truly confront the, uh, um, the discomforting parts of my family's story and say, let's face it, you know, we have, we have overcome this too, or we can, if we haven't, we can overcome this. So let's look at the whole, the whole story. Um, so, you know, some parts were painful and shameful to previous generations, but I didn't, I wanted to get beyond that pain and, and shame. So, um, is that, enough? is that a good answer? Did you want more? <laughs> yeah. Can, can I, no, can I ask you a, a follow-up? Um, uh, you know, you do confront these hard truths, but at the same time, the stories you share are also about the contributions of your family in different moments and, and their resilience. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit how you balanced, you know, taking on some of these aspects that hadn't been taken on previously while also, you know, showing, um, you know, what we tend to, you know, the, what we tend to take for granted in terms of the important contributions that black Americans, um, and, and African American communities have made both to our society and to our democracy. Mm-hmm. Well, for my family, it goes back to Mandy, who was our first African ancestor in America and our first griot. And she taught us to be fighting mad. You know, that there were, you know, there were times when it was good to be angry and to channel that angry into a into a personal strength and she passed she passed that down um but over the generations my family had different resources that that they garnered to um be able to 
go on and move ahead and um, make contributions. And those resources were based on values and beliefs, many of which actually came from Africa, but the values of the sense of community, commitment to other people um, is a strong part of, of the African-American experience and our ability to get through some very trying times. And um, we also recognize that slaves had, or at least I recognize and my grandfather recognized and some of us recognize that slaves really had a remarkable inner strength and a sense of balance that you know, gave them um, the ability to endure not only slavery, but the aftermath of slavery, you know, with the um, Jim Crow and the racism that followed even after uh, Jim Crow, there was still an inner strength in the sense that, you know, we are human beings. We are an important part of all of humanity. We have the same rights that anybody else does. And we're going to um, use those rights, fulfill those rights to the best of our ability. And we also inherited many talents that were gifted to us um, from our enslaved ancestors. And um, that was through the, by nurturing and expressing those talents, we were able to contribute mightily to this country. And, you know, so sometimes it's really kind of pragmatic day-to-day -day things, like when my, my great-grandfather was freed, he worked for a period of time of his previous enslaver, and he was paid. And so he saved every penny, and not every, not every penny, but as much as he could in order to buy land. And land gave him a sense of safety and independence. And, and then he turned, a year later, he turned it over and doubled the amount of land he had. Another of my ancestors um, decided he didn't want to be a farmer, but he trained himself as a carpenter and um, built his own home and encouraged his children to get educations. And he became an alderman and a policeman. And these people recognize that they had talents and abilities that really um, they had to work hard to express because there were certain elements of the um, population that didn't want them to exceed, but they believed in themselves. And so they were, they were able to um, use their strengths and make contributions. Is it okay if I ask a follow-up question? To that sure yes please uh it's back to um your uh family's credo um <laughs> so uh in the credo it states you're a madison and you come from slaves and a president 
and early, earlier you had just mentioned about sort of making uh, anger, rage uh, conducive into some into something uh, constructive. And I don't I don't mean to be presumptuous, but I'm guessing um, there may be some uh, frustration with Madison as a president and how he, and with his relationship with uh, enslaved people. If that if that is the case, um, has there been any type of uh, resolve between using that conducive uh, rate towards addressing Madison and also, I guess, many founding fathers rather? <laughs> Uh, let me speak for myself. Um, I am able to recognize that I'm angry with him. I ad- admire Madison for his genius um, and for setting up a constitution that, though flawed, especially with respect to how it deals with African-Americans, it, a lot, it, it gave a structure, a, it presented a structure that allows stability uh, for the country as a whole. But I am angry with him because he was such a hypocrite. Uh, he wrote time and again, that slavery was wrong, that it was a sad block on our country, to quote him. But he owned people. He owned hundreds of people. And he never freed a single one. He tore apart families, but he never freed. I mean, he sold sold slaves, but he never freed any slaves. So... For me, this, it doesn't sound constructive probably, but it is constructive for me because I can see who he, who he truly was and put it all together in a, in a complete story. And so I can be proud to have descended from um, a man who had such genius but I can also allow myself to be angry with him for owning people and for taking advantage of at least one enslaved woman. I don't know whether there were others. But having um, a full view of him does strengthen me. And... Um, it's an, it's an important part of the message in my book. Um, and Madison certainly wasn't the only founding father who had the same flaws, although other founding fathers did free uh, some of his enslaved people, like... Um, Jefferson and Washington, and I, I'm not sure about Monroe. I don't know. But uh, does that answer your question, or uh, do you need me to clarify a bit of it? That answered it perfectly. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, 
And our next question is that you share personal experiences of traveling from California to the Jim Crow South as a young girl and some of the contrasts being Black in Oakland versus the South. Would you be willing to talk about how Black Americans experience racism and discrimination differently and how these relate, oh, excuse me, realizations have impacted your own thinking about racism and racial injustice? Um, I, I think I understand this question is comparing racism in the North versus racism in the South, right? Okay. Um, I think that racism, the experience of racism in the South, especially before this uh, civil rights movement, were clear-cut. They were rigid. They were in signs. They were in the whites-only and black-only signs um, above restrooms and uh, water fountains. They, it, the um, boundaries imposed by racism were clear that Black people could not be served. They had to go to the back of the bus. I mean, it was just clear in all aspects of, of day-to-day life. While in the, the North, racism has always been in the North, you know, as, as well, but it's, it's sneakier. It's, um, it's, it's, it's insidious, but it's everywhere. And it's, it's just as, as limiting. And it could be a, a bit confusing for children, um, you know, it's, it, you know, especially for someone who was as overly protected as as I was, and you know, and so on. The one hand, I was much more free than children who grew up in the South, but I was probably a lot more confused and was surprised and didn't know what to think of the, you know, the racism that I experienced. And one example is in my book, when I travel from um, the Bay Area down in, into Texas and how this was the first time I learned that black children and plant, um, white children couldn't play together. And the, it soon became clear to me that the implication was that black children weren't good enough to play with white children. And um, that's, you know, I, I think that in the South, racism looks more like racism. Racism always looked in the North, but it, it's still there and it's still just oppressive. And I imagine, you know, still just con- uh, as confusing to young black people, it's probably also confusing to one to uh, white children as well. And I do believe that racism is harmful to white children as well, white people, but especially white children as well, uh, because you know you you can only be good by putting somebody else down. That doesn't say much about your own value. 
anyway, I'll stop with that question. It's, it's kind of a, a sensitive, um, you know, it's a sensitive thing to have to think about, especially as a former pediatrician. Thank you so much for, for answering um, and sharing with us. Um, you, and, and, you know, this next question, I, I, this, this part of the book actually really impacted me quite a bit um, when you shared uh, about one of your research trips to Montpelier to try to uncover your family history. Um, you describe confronting a white couple from Maryland. You were eating waffles <laughs> um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's morning. You're just trying to enjoy your breakfast and, and you know, this, this couple essentially put the burden on you to explain, you know, why racism was still a major issue in this country. Um, we are at James Madison University, which is a predominantly and historically white institution. Um, and higher education more broadly um, has been extremely problematic in perpetuating racism and racial inequities. Um, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about our responsibilities as institutions of higher education for addressing racial injustice and systemic racism without placing the onus for education on black, indigenous, Latino or Latina, um, and other people of color? I just sort of want to repeat a little bit of what that dentist actually said to me in the bed and breakfast. He said that racism was a thing of the past, that even he had voted for a black person um, as a mayor, and that black people should just get over it, and that um, it was all in our heads. And you know, I had I, I felt compelled to tell him how he was wrong and why he was wrong. And you know, in that situation, I was the only one present who could set him straight. But um, I can in the schools, and I can remember even in high school. Um, a text saying that, you know, slaves were happy, they were taken care of, and, you know, sort of feeling like, no, you know, um, that's wrong. And I, you know, I don't recall a similar event in my own college experience because I, I you know, I didn't major in history. I was a science major and didn't have that, but, you know, as a, a responsibility there. It just didn't come up in an academic setting. But I think um, at James Madison University and in other um, educational institutions, especially those that are predominantly white, the pro professors are going to have to take on the responsibility of, of um, you know, setting the history the history right. And since you're talking about James Madison University, I I think a good place to start would be the 18, I'm sorry, the 1787 
constitution, which was really kind of um, headed, led by, by James Madison. And the constitution um, set up the framework of how African-Americans are viewed even today. And there are seven clauses in the Constitution that deal with African-Americans, but nowhere in the Constitution are the, the words slave or slavery uh, mentioned. Instead, they use, the Constitution uses the term other persons, which right away marginalizes people of African descent. They are other. And um, then there's, you know, there's the infamous or famous, I don't know, depending on your point of view, three-fifths clause, which though talking about um, taxation and representation, it, it still undermines the view of people of African descent, descent as whole people, as people as equally worthy of being counted as anyone else um, in, in this new nation. And there are three clauses in the Constitution that make African Americans appear not only to be dangerous, but also to be unworthy of some of the protections of the Constitution. And two of those three, okay, so one of them um, allows the Congress to establish militia to suppress slave revolts. Another one allows states to establish their own militia to suppress slave revolts. And these two, they were very important to the white community because the white community was terrified that slaves might um, decide they, you know, they don't want to be dehumanized. Um, they don't want to be brutalized. And so they, you know, the white population was comforted by those two clauses. And then there's a third clause that says the writ of habeas corpus must be applied in every case except where the defendant or defendants were slaves who had revolted. And this attitude that slaves are dangerous and don't deserve the same protections of the Constitution that other people in the population have has not, I was going to say trickle down, but trickling sounds like it has kind of waned, but it hasn't waned. It is, it's, has taken new forms. So we don't talk about militia, um, except when 
a certain president calls the militia in to suppress people expressing their rights. But generally, we're talking about our local police being the equivalent of local militia. They still see their role as keeping Black people in check in order to protect the white community. And that, you know, that hasn't changed. And the way that um, the courts or the um, legislatures approach these people is, you know, the people who have been uh, mistreated by the police is to deny them the same rights afforded by other people of the population. And so these are the things that professors can teach and can put into historical perspective for those students who are in predominantly um, white institutions so that they can, these students can begin to understand what black people are experiencing and why. That was a long answer, but it's, it's a complicated, it's a complicated and important um, question. Um, yeah, thank you for it. Cause I, I definitely didn't know um, about the change in forms from militia for police uh, or into police rather. Um, yeah, so thank you. Um, but our next question is still pertaining to the constitution. Um, so this year is the 150th anniversary of the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, which states the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be devi- oh, excuse me, denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Can you speak on the importance of exercising the right to vote in light of the recent Black Lives Matter protests during the pandemic and the upcoming presidential election? Yes. Um, what is going on in the country is is extremely, with respect to voting rights, is very upsetting. Ever since the Fifteenth Amendment has passed, was passed, there have been efforts to deny. African Americans, their right to vote. You know, there have been tests they've had to pass, tests on the Constitution. Um, they've had to demonstrate that they um, they had to pay. They had they had to pay. There was a poll tax. Um, there were all there were there were threats like if you go vote. Don't come back to work. Um, And this was from the very beginning, especially as um, Black people were able to put people in office on on the local and, and state levels. That became, you know, threatening to um, the white status status quo, status quo. And that is the situation today. Um, You know, 
voter suppression, active voter suppression, is truly threatening the outcome of this presidential race. And it seems to me that the president and his supporters will do whatever they can to suppress the vote of those that they believe are not going to support keeping the current president in in office. And it becomes focused on the African-American community. You know, by restricting voting places, making it difficult to vote by mail, um, closing polling sites and, and, you know, on and on. But it is very important that we find a way. You know, it's going to vary from person to person, from community to community, depending on, uh, you know, what the person's ability is with respect to their jobs, what the community is able to do in order to counter some of these efforts to um, um, disenfranchise African-Americans. Is there more I can say to clarify? Oh, I I think that answered it perfectly. Dr. Betty Kearse, author of The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family, we ask this question of all our guests on Democracy Matters. What would you do to strengthen democracy? I sort of just answered that, but, but okay, I did. Um, I, you know, we should guarantee that all eligible voters be able to do so in a safe and convenient manner. All votes should be counted and reported in a timely and accurate manner. And most important to um, the stability of the country after this election is over, the outcome should be honored and respected and and accepted by both voters and the two candidates. Dr. Kears, thank you again so much for writing this important book and for taking the time to talk with Kyle and, and myself today. It was a pleasure. May I take a moment to, uh, to state the takeaway message of my book? Oh, yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I want all of your listeners to know that enslaved people were remarkable individuals who contributed mightily to America and who passed down their values and personal qualities to their descendants, including those of us alive today. And thank you for helping me promote my book. Thank you for mentioning the other Madisons. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Caitlin Waltmeyer, a senior media arts and design major. 
Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about us at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.